So we've got a big team, and our team, uh, we have no uh, uh, disclosures. Uh, we are biased toward quality improvement, evidence, uh, a holistic approach to, to health. And our objectives are to really think about people as a whole person. And uh, how many of you are here one year ago, two years ago, three years ago? Great. Uh, I was here two years ago, and there's a, there's a sea change. Some of that sea change is pleasant. Some of it feels like the wave has just crashed over us. But there's a change toward trying to see people as whole people, and chronic pain as something different than uh, an irritated nociceptive receptor. We're going to talk about the importance of working within teams, teams that include people that are different from our own professions, and how that can be very powerful. And we're going to give a couple ideas for those of you that don't have a team like this now, how you can pull it off. And I'd be happy to answer questions later, more specifically, if you have those. Uh, we've got another program right after this, and so uh, once we get some questions here and get uh, moved out, I'll, I'll be free, and we'll be free to answer some other questions outside. So the overview of the talk today, I'm going to give a big picture of the Empower Veteran Program. We're going to talk about the specific components and then we'll have questions and answers. And as you can see, we've got three bigger parts, this acceptance and commitment therapy, mindful movement, and uh, other important parts that's this whole health perspective, as well as adjunct members like the social worker who uh, is the glue for those folks that are about to lose their home and having other life crises. So in terms of... Uh, whole health and well-being, we really, really want to help our service women and men who have left our country uh, to protect us. And they've often not had great opportunities in the United States. Uh, they've left many times rough neighborhoods, rural settings, inner city, They've gone off to tough places, gotten the heck beat out of them, and they've come back to those same difficult environments, but now with extra challenges. And this is Paul Berholt. Uh, he's another partner in, in our team, a social worker who has helped with much of the whole health coaching and training up the chaplains. And these are uh, two gentlemen veterans that uh, agreed to have their picture taken uh, to help promote what we're doing in one of the earlier sessions. So we've graduated 200 veterans, and these folks are not, uh, gee, uh, I'd like to take full use of my gym membership, and, you know, I've already completed a triathlon. Uh, what else do you have for me? These are folks that often are isolated. Uh, they're not doing much physically, socially. Uh, they're uh, afraid that you know, if they leave, their pain may flare, their PTSD may trigger. And so you can see that 
uh, we're talking about not just a diagnosis of a herniated disc, uh, problems with migraines, but it's affecting multiple spheres of their life. And it's also affecting the teams that are trying to take care of them, not really knowing what to do. And that often escalates into unsafe medical pharmacotherapy because we just don't know what to do. And they come back and they're miserable. And we're trying to do something. We've had a lot of support from many within the VA. Uh, and if it weren't for lots of folks, we would not be here. All the way from the Director of Pain Management, Matt Gallagher, the Office of Patient-Centered Care, Tracy Gaudet and her team, and lots of different folks, including uh, much leadership at the Atlanta VA, where we are currently housed. And we've got a great team. I'd like to also uh, give special thanks to Dr. Del Ventura. Jenna is another one of our psychologists, but she brings interest and skills in numbers crunching and keeping the data clean uh, so that we can see how are we doing and how can we make things better. And you can see other folks there, our great social worker, Ushvani Prasad, uh, Paul, I mentioned, and, and two of the chaplains, Drew Tomerlin, Curtis Williams. We also have other physical therapists uh, that were trained by Jennifer Ganson, who beams in, and so uh, Lindsay Ballinger, Lindsay Ballinger and George Shaw, and a lot of other folks. So it really does take a team to pull off something this good. Uh, but teams are possible even when you feel like, gee, it's not really going to work in my setting. Uh, there are ways to uh, up the ante and, and work with the powers that be to find a way to meet their needs and the needs of the people you're trying to serve. We're going to be able to spread beyond the Atlanta VA starting early this next calendar year. We've already got much of the uh, training that we're going to be talking about in the manual, uh, as well as working on fidelity checks and a mentoring process that is intensive to help people uh, bring this online. So if you're part of a VA and you're interested in, in, in uh, bringing this to your setting, uh, have we got a deal for you? So the current step care in the United States, as we all know, is typically a lot of things that we can write for, uh, prescriptions, a lot of shotgunned uh, consults, and a little bit of self-care. Uh, you'll notice that step three, kind of a multidisciplinary, CARF accredited program, 100 hour, uh, is very inaccessible for most folks. Although, that kind of a program is very effective. The VA star is in Tampa. Do we have anybody here from Tampa? Uh, that is the premier program, you know, three-week residential. Unfortunately, that can accommodate about 170 veterans a year, another 70 outpatient, uh, so not enough, although uh, it's very effective. And even with all those resources, it has been shown to be cost-effective in the past, and you can even... Uh, according to the Aetna site on the bottom, arm wrestle some of the insurance companies, anybody from the insurance company, uh, to provide this kind of care for your clients if you make the case and let them know that, look, if you leave them in this miserable state, they're just using a lot of your money 
maybe you want to help them in functional restoration. So the model that we're using is how can we bring a lot of care to the client uh, in this interdisciplinary format? How can we create uh, this functional restoration? And the functional restoration to allow people to have self-care, not because we want to say we're withholding the good stuff, but we want them to live lives. We don't want them to have to come back uh, once a week for our acupuncture or whatever for the rest of their lives where they have to say, well, I'd like to you know, visit you in California, but you know, I've got this appointment next week. So self-care is really the goal. And so why EVP and, and uh, another uh, module that can be very helpful, a high-risk safety clinic, we, we need to move away from things that are any of these dangerous or ineffective or passive. And we want to move to the right to things that are all of these, safe and moderately effective and active self-care. There may be an important transition in between a bridge where you would have effective, evidence-based, conventional care like an injection or complementary integrative practices that are evidence-based like acupuncture, spinal manipulation, massage. We don't do those particular things, but those could make a lot of sense in certain settings, including a bridging clinic where you're tapering people from an unsafe regimen to something that was safer. But So we're moving away from things like high-dose opioids, benzodiazepines, some injections, some surgery, toward things that are on the right here, deep breathing, self-massage, progressive exercise, mindful movement, mindfulness training, CBT or ACT. Uh, who all in the audience uh, delivers CBT or ACT? Great. Uh, what about a movement therapy? Very good. Uh, and what about uh, uh, a form of mindfulness? Very good. Has anybody done uh, uh, kind of a, a larger pain school approach? All right. Well, there's, that's, that's a great point. What do you mean by pain school? Uh, and uh, there can be brilliant pain schools, and there can be, you know, you drop in for a 50-minute didactic that's canned and not necessarily changing your life. So... The Empower Veteran program is a 10-week program, uh, 30 hours total. So a given veteran uh, starting this next Tuesday would have 10 Tuesday mornings with us from 8.30 to 11.30. The following week, we're going to start a Tuesday afternoon class, 12.30 to 3.30, for 10 Tuesday afternoons. And most of the training is in a group setting. There is some one-on-one -on -one individual coaching that I'll be talking about. And the three parts are whole health, acceptance and commitment therapy, and the mindful movement. And uh, we'll talk more about these in stages. But I would like to say for the whole health, uh, we're using uh, the circle of health, an idea that we are whole complex beings. And there are different parts of us that if we're not tending to these things, 
they become out of balance. And if they're not nurtured or out of balance, then they're going to express themselves uh, as part of this real pain. So part of real pain is biologic. Part of it is sociologic. Part of it is psychological. Part of it is spiritual. And it's all these different things together that uh, if any of those or all of them are out of balance, they will express themselves as chronic pain. So for any of our staff, this is a typical week in terms of what we're doing in groups. Every Monday morning, we start out with a meet and greet. A uh, 30-hour program, most people are saying, are you crazy? I might come once, but you're not going to get me to come for three hours for 10 times. No way. So we have a, a session where they get to hear about the, the program and uh, ask questions. And for those familiar with ACT, I give a little bit of a creative hopelessness and talk about how good our existing therapies are. And some medicines work to a degree for some people, and we talk about those. Uh, some CAM works. Some uh, conventional procedures work. Uh, but they don't work 100%. Yes? It's hard. So Atlanta traffic, we've, we've played around with the times. And uh, at first, we had, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we would start late. And you'll, you'll see that we, we believe in iterative change. And our team has embraced change. Uh, we started out with some classes that started quite late. And we actually had late sessions on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And people uh, didn't seem to take advantage of those. And some people said, man, I have to come. Uh, and to beat the Atlanta traffic, I actually have to be here at 7. Can you start at 7? And I said, well, my staff may not love that. What about 8.30? So, but it's a, it's a great question. For those that have slower starts, we do have this 12.30 class. Uh, on Mondays and Fridays, we have a 10.30 start. The Friday class you'll see there is for women veteran only. So we've got eight concurrent classes, uh, each starting every 10 weeks. We also got to finish a Saturday series to increase access for some folks that were working and couldn't otherwise uh, make that. For those that have completed our program, uh, we have iMove that Jennifer may touch on a bit later. I'm not sure, but we can answer your questions about that. But that's, our, that's kind of our, our work week in terms of of the, uh, the group setting. So this is a quality improvement initiative uh, where IRB approved is exempt. And we measure what we're doing a lot of different ways. Uh, you can see this long list of, of validated measures that we use. And I'm going to go through and tell you a little bit what we found with the first 154 uh, graduates. So these are the data that I'm going to describe is uh, versions 3 through 3.3. We're now in version 4.6. And the veterans that are included in those 154, they came to at least eight of the 10 sessions. And we got data at weeks 1 and 10 uh, for this large 50-minute paper assessment. The dropout rate is about a third. And uh, as you'll see, 
uh, we have very few exclusion criteria. So if you want to try it out, you're welcome to come. So you need to be a veteran with pain, willing to at least explore a group. And for our veterans with PTSD that's bad, they may be sitting, if they still have a wife, in the back of the room with their wife or other supportive person, uh, kind of checking it out. Uh, is this safe? And uh, so this is, these are not uh, easy uh, clients that, we, that we're showing you. In fact, most of these folks uh, were given cold calls and we pulled them off the list of the folks that were on the highest dose opioids. So this is not about tapering in, in the program that we're doing. This is all about training, whether you're on opioids or not. But I want to give you the sense that these are not uh, easy. So, again, thanks to Dr. Del Ventura, uh, she was able to compare uh, the before and after scores. And we don't use the significance statistically at 0.05. You'll notice that we're using it at 0.002 because we're making a lot of comparisons. And so if we're saying it's statistically significant, it's a much uh, smaller window to say it was significant so that there's not a random uh, yes with all these comparisons. In terms of the demographics, mostly uh, middle-aged and older men. So a lot of folks from Vietnam, a lot of folks from the first Gulf War, uh, a few folks from more recent conflicts, and we would love to find ways to draw in more of those early. Mostly African-American, uh, mostly service-connected. And, and they're also 20% women. Uh, what's, the, what's the average, uh, the rough percentage of women in the, the armed forces and, and new veterans? 15 to 20%. So we're, we're able to reach out to a number of women, and, uh, and that's also important because they also have served us. So what we've noticed is that we've got not just statistically significant changes, but clinically significant decreases in pain interference, pain catastrophizing, depression. This is not an evidence-based therapy for depression, but as we've screened people with a PHQ-9, we've seen that. Uh, and clinically significant increases in pain uh, activity engagement and physical quality of life. So when you're interpreting the bar graphs I'm going to show you, the whiskers are not the typical 95% confidence intervals, but one standard deviation just to show you the range of the scores. And we're going to talk about effect sizes. So Cohen's D uh, is trying to get at how big of a change is this. Uh, if, it, you know, if, if you're using a 10-point scale and you're able to statistically decrease the pain by half a point, who cares? Uh, so uh, the clinical significance we can look at a little bit with the uh, uh, Cohen's D. So a small effect would be 0.2, moderate 0.5, uh, and that should be uh, large 0.8. So one of the measures, the chronic pain acceptance questionnaire, uh, you can see that there's 
a, uh, a Cohen's D for activity engagement of 0.78, which is quite large, uh, change in the, from weeks 1 to 10. Uh, this pain willingness wasn't changed, and we'll talk about that. The PHQ-9 a measure for depression, you can see that people moved from moderately severe depression to moderate on average. Pain catastrophizing, you can see uh, a small to moderate effect size. The acceptance action questionnaire, uh, a measure of, of how much avoiding people are doing, you can see that there's less avoidance behaviors. Uh, the pain interference, again, a decrease, although th this is a more smaller effect size. The quality of life uh, in terms of physical, psychological, social, environmental, uh, all with uh, improvements, and the largest one within the physical domain at a Cohen effect of 0.4. The PROMISE 29, which is a whole collection of, of measures, uh, we have a number of significant changes, although not with fatigue, sleep, or socialized uh, roles uh, by the 10-week mark. And uh, uh, this questionnaire, interestingly, for depression, as opposed to the PHQ-9 with nine questions, it has just two questions for depression. We were also trying to assess uh, the ability to train veterans in mindful practices over 10 weeks, and uh, we were not affecting this mindfulness questionnaire with that first cohort. So it's trying to measure five domains of mindfulness, observing, describing, acting, non-judging, non-reacting. It's a self-report. Yes, it's an interesting concept. Uh, so all of these measures are validated, and they're all flawed. And we're often using measures that were designed not for mindfulness or act, but were designed for earlier models of what pain was and how we should intervene which is why we've included some acceptance mindfulness measures uh, as part of the whole package. And uh, we would love to you know, work with people who are brilliant in creating new measures that are, are uh, you know, measuring better things uh, moving forward. So uh, we also have some physical therapy measures. And you can see, interestingly, not with the right uh, single leg stance, but with the left, there was an improvement. And with the timed up and go test, there was an improvement. So we didn't see changes in pain willingness, some of these mindfulness uh, domains, or sleep impairment and fatigue. And we're all about uh, ongoing testing, changing. Uh, uh, and I, I'm very appreciative of the staff of embracing that model because it's not easy to keep trying and, and seeing where you're uh, doing good enough and where you need to improve. So since 3.3, we have added more mindfulness practices uh, in class. We've added a more explicit motivational interviewing stance for the whole health
coaches, the social worker and the chaplains that are leading uh, parts that I'll talk to you about in detail uh, toward the end of the session. And uh, we've played around with some of the metaphors to make them more understandable uh, for, for our veteran audience and, and a larger audience. So uh, we're glad, since this slide set was pre uh, prepared, that we actually have a medical anthropologist who's going to be joining us uh, this next month to do focus groups and then telephone interviews. The people that decided not to come, the people that came and dropped out. Uh, and we have been doing informal uh, story gathering, though, trying to hear what's working, what's not working, to make it better for veterans. And these are some of the things that, that we hear a lot of. The pain's not in control anymore. Uh, every veteran should do this. I'm not so angry anymore. You know, I was suicidal. Uh, this is the best thing the VA has given to me. And we invite significant others, supportive others, to be with the veteran for the entire 10 weeks. And when uh, supportive others come, they're usually saying, gee, I, this is helpful for me, and I also understand my husband or whoever uh, better. And, you know, he's a new man. He's, you know. So how did we do this? Well, EVP 1.0, uh, we knew that there were problems. We didn't have enough access to great pain care and functional restoration. And so we talked to our regional uh, uh, center and said, uh, you're spending a lot of money on medicines, on urine testing to make sure that people are not messing around. Uh, some people are still bopping into the emergency room. And those costs are a lot. Not even looking at the wastes of overutilization of pain clinic, PMNR, uh, kind of misuse of mental health, uh, no-shows, uh, burning out primary care. Just with a few things that we could measure, we could say, we could put on a great program and cost you less within three years. What do you think? And they said, let's do it. We're eventually going to be using a balanced scorecard to look at a lot of measures. So on the uh, right here, we can look at long-term veteran function and satisfaction, as well as uh, overdose deaths. We can also look at, and we'll look at, staff satisfaction with a uh, medical anthropologist doing surveys of staff. We're, we're also going to be looking at, with a health economist, uh, utilization of services. And if we can demonstrate that uh, not only are people improving, having fewer unintended consequences from medications, uh, uh, but they're actually costing the system less, then it will be very easy to spread and do the right thing. So I'd like to introduce now Dr. Hammonds. Uh, Beth is our chief, uh, our lead psychologist with the Empower Veteran Program team, and she'll talk to you about ACT. everybody. Can you hear me? All right, let me make sure I know how to work this. All right, um, so my name is Beth Hammonds. I am a clinical psychologist, 
and I work with the Empower Veterans Program. So, suppose I tell you, for the next few moments, don't think about jelly donuts. You could think about anything you'd like to, but please don't think about jelly donuts. So you know when you go in the bakery and you could smell the smell of freshly baked jelly donuts? And maybe you see them on the counter on the wax paper and they have the powdered sugar on them. And you know when you bite into a jelly donut and it's sweet and chewy, maybe you taste the sweet taste of the jelly in your mouth? This is very important. Don't think about jelly donuts. So what are most people in the room thinking about right now? Jelly donuts, right? So what does this tell us about how the human mind works? So as human beings, we're not very good at controlling our internal experiences like thoughts and emotions. And ACT, our acceptance and commitment therapy, is built around this idea that as humans, we're pretty limited at our ability to control what we think and what we feel. So today, what I'm going to be talking to you about is ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. So the first part of my presentation is going to be kind of a, just a brief overview, um, some of the main tenets, the main um, ideas that are, that are part of ACT. And then the second half, we're going to do an experiential exercise together, one that we use in Empower Veterans Program. So to get us started, let's talk a little bit about values. So the, the goal of ACT is to help people create a meaningful, purposeful, high quality of life. So we do this by focusing on personal values. So personal values are pretty much anything that you hold dear, anything that has meaning, purpose, that brings fulfillment into your life. So if you imagine a person with chronic pain, or perhaps you experience chronic pain, and think about how that impacts your day-to-day -day functioning. A lot of your time, energy, effort becomes taken up with trying to control or manage your chronic pain experience. So this can leave a person feeling overwhelmed, overburdened, and to feel like they don't have a lot of energy and time into putting um, into other areas of their life, things like relationships, things like personal growth. And so in ACT, we're shifting energy away from these unproductive attempts at controlling internal experiences and rather putting energy into trying to build a higher quality of life. So we ask people questions like, if you didn't have pain, what would you be doing with your life? So I invite you to think about this for yourself. Perhaps bring to mind a situation in your life where you're feeling stuck or you feel like you're maybe having some some discomfort or some unpleasant feelings. Maybe it's a relationship issue or a stressful work situation. Maybe you're dealing with a medical condition yourself. And ask yourself, if I wasn't faced with this situation or this experience, what would I be doing? What would I want my life to be about? And so for some of you, maybe quickly you, you know off the top of your head what you would want your life to be about. And maybe there's other people in the room who aren't quite sure. And so this is the beginning of this process of clarifying personal values. It's important to keep in mind that there's not a correct or incorrect answer, and our values are a lifelong journey. 
There's something that we work towards our entire life. We never finish. And our personal values shift and change as we move through different phases of our life. So you can see up here we also have experiential avoidance. So this is a, another big important part of acceptance and commitment therapy. So avoidance behaviors are pretty much anything that you do or avoid doing as to not feel uncomfortable. So basically trying to keep feelings of discomfort from happening. So in ACT, the idea is that the, these avoidance behaviors are really at the root of our distress or suffering. So let's, let's use an example to think about this. So in the context of chronic pain, a person has a pain sensation. That's uncomfortable. We don't like it. We want to get rid of it. And so maybe as part of that, a person says, has thoughts that come to their mind. Maybe they say, I can't bear this. I'm going to have to stay home today because I'm not going to be able to function with this pain here. So perhaps they stay home and they spend most of the day on the couch, not doing very much. And they do that for a couple of days. And maybe in the short term it works. Maybe their pain isn't as bad when they're at home on the couch. Then over time, maybe they start to feel lonely, isolated. Again, those are uncomfortable feelings. We don't like that. It feels bad to feel lonely, isolated. So then we're back in the trap of, well, I don't like this. I want to make it go away. So maybe I'll try sleeping. Maybe I'll just try to sleep most of the day, and then it works. When I'm asleep, I don't feel pain. I don't feel lonely, isolated, depressed. And that's the tricky thing about these short-term solutions. On the surface, they work. But if we look at the trajectory of a person's life, over time, it's diminishing, pulling away from their quality of life. And it's actually leading to a more and more constricted life. So what do we do about that? How can we help people when they, from their life becoming overly constricted? So one way we do this is committed action. So committed action is just as simple as it sounds. It is choosing to do something and then putting it into action. So in ACT, committed action is really guided by your personal values. Your values are the compass that kind of direct where you take committed action. However, it's important to differentiate committed action from the grin and bear it or the white knuckle it approach. So in committed action, we're bringing in these aspects of acceptance and willingness. So acceptance is actively embracing your internal experiences, such as pain, anxiety, for what they are, without unnecessary attempts at changing them or controlling them. And then willingness is the behavior. So willingness is action. It's moving in a valued direction, while at the same time being fully in contact, present in the moment that you're in. So these are some abstract ex examples, some abstract definitions. So let me put this into context for you. I'll use myself as an example. So I'm here today giving a talk about ACT because it has personal value to me. So I wanted to make a professional contribution by giving a talk about ACT. But in order for me to do this right now, I'm having to experience some unpleasant sensations. So my palms are kind of sweaty up here, feeling some anxiety, 
I'm having thoughts like, what if I mess up? They're going to think I'm stupid, right? And so all of this is happening in this moment. And for me to get rid of those internal experiences is pretty much impossible. I'm not going to be able to make these go away in this moment. So instead, I'm accepting them. I'm acknowledging that this is my experience in this moment, and I'm willing to continue the talk, even in spite of all of these feelings, thoughts, sensations that I'm having in the moment. So acceptance and willingness really frees us up. It allows us to have unpleasant, uncomfortable internal experiences, and at the same time still continue in committed action. So, as a person continues in their committed action, inevitably, they are going to run into some barriers. It's part of the process, part of the human experience. So these barriers can show up in all kinds of different forms. They show up sometimes as external situations. So <clears throat> maybe you experience these. Maybe you woke up this morning and you were going through your luggage and realized oh, you packed the wrong pair of shoes. You didn't have shoes that went with the clothes that you brought today. Or maybe you woke up and you had some internal experiences that created a barrier for you. Maybe you had the feeling of low motivation this morning. It's Saturday. You've been through a lot of talks. You had thoughts in your mind like, I just don't know if I could sit in those rooms anymore and listen to another person, right? And yet, here you are. Even in spite of mismatched shoes, low motivation, unhelpful thoughts, you made it. So in ACT, we call that psychological flexibility. So that's the ability to, to navigate barriers as they arise. It's that process of persisting in or changing your behavior in order to match what situation you're faced with in that moment. So maybe you had to change your behavior this morning. Maybe you had to run across the street and buy a new pair of shoes before you came. Or maybe you just persisted in behavior. Maybe you said, you know, these thoughts are here, but I'm going to get dressed, I'm going to have breakfast, and, and go to the conference today. And so it's very likely that even in this day, you yourself have engaged in committed action, navigating these barriers. So I'm going to briefly touch on mindfulness. You're going to hear more about this at a later point in the talk. Um, but mindfulness is a really important part of acceptance and commitment therapy. It, it allows people to step back from their internal experiences. It allows us to observe our thoughts, our emotions, our sensations, and to simply call a thought a thought, an emotion an emotion, without getting stuck to or fused or feeling like that that thought or internal experience or emotion is who we are. So later in our talk, when you're doing a mindfulness practice, I encourage you to think about how mindfulness really informs and ties into this idea of acceptance and commitment therapy. So I know that you've already heard um, about some of the, the program evalu evaluation results, so I just want to briefly touch on this. Um, so we've given you an overview of ACT, but you may be asking yourself, well, what, what, how does this actually help people, right? What, what does this have to do with people who are experiencing chronic pain? So that's a great question. <clears throat> so part of why we chose ACT for our program is that there's a large body of evidence that supports its use with people who experience chronic pain. 
So ACT as an intervention has been around for a while. So with chronic pain, there's a body of research spanning over about the past 15 years, and it's continuing to grow. There's also multiple randomized controlled trials supporting the use of ACT with chronic pain. So in EVP, we're doing our program evaluation. So I just want to touch briefly on some of the measures that are specific to ACT. So the chronic pain acceptance questionnaire is an ACT measure. And so um, what we're finding is that people are taking more action towards their values. That's the activity engagement. Basically what that means is they're doing more even though their pain is still there. We're also finding that people are increasing in psychological flexibility. So that was the AAQ that we talked about earlier. So psychological flexibility is that ability to kind of persist in or change behavior in spite of what, what you're experiencing in the moment. And then one of the ones that we also talked about was the, the pain willingness. So that's one where we're not seeing changes, right? And so we've made some changes in our recent version of ACT um, to, to hopefully address some of this. So I'll summarize ACT, and then we'll do a, an exercise together. So the overall goal of ACT is quality of life. We're pretty explicit and upfront at week one that we are not here to guarantee or to tell you that you're going to experience a, a change in, in your pain. Your pain may still be there. But at the end of the 10-week program, our intention is that you feel like you're doing more with your life, that your life has more meaning and purpose. So in ACT, we make heavy use of metaphors and experiential exercises. So we do this very purposely to get around some of the traps that human language can get us stuck in. So we use metaphors and these exercises to facilitate behavior change. We focus on the here and now. In ACT, we try to move away from rationalizing or explaining and instead encourage people to ask themselves, what is my experience telling me? And so to do this, we're going to give you an opportunity to, to, to try this out. So if I could get five volunteers to come up front and have a seat in, in our chairs over here. <laughs> Looks like we have room for one more person. So one more person willing to come up. <laughs> one more willing person. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So up here we have a bus. And at the front, we have a bus driver. And back here, we have some passengers. And I'm going to pass around some different identities for our passengers. So we have sadness on our bus today. We have pain. We have anger and worry. So we have some unpleasant, unruly, difficult passengers who have shown up on this bus. And our poor bus driver is up here trying to keep this bus moving with all of these passengers back here having lots to say. So what are some of the things that the passengers might say? So how about sadness? What might sadness have to say about this bus ride? Maybe 
This is no fun. <laughs> this is awful. <laughs> Worst bus ride ever. <laughs> How about pain? What might pain have to say? Jeez, watch the bumps. <laughs> You're hitting every bump. These chairs are horrible. And what about anger? Are we there yet? <laughs> right. Can you hurry it up? <laughs> and here chimes in worry. I think the driver's a drunk and we're going to have a wreck. <laughs> this driver's drunk. She doesn't know how to drive. And so our driver is up here trying to manage all of these passengers. And so what might the driver try to control or manage these unruly passengers? What might, might be a strategy you might try out? Shut up. Yeah, maybe she turns around and tells them, shut up. You guys are awful. Be quiet back there. What's that do with anger? What's anger have to say about being told to shut up? Oh, yeah? <laughs> I'm not shutting up. Yeah. You shut up. You shut up, right? So that one doesn't work. Trying to make them shut up didn't work. What else might a driver try? If you guys don't shut up, I'm going to kick you off the bus. Yeah, threaten to throw them off. I'm going to pull this bus over and kick you guys out. But one of the rules of the bus is no one can make physical contact. So are you guys getting off this bus? No. no. You paid your fare, right? You, you got places to go. You're not getting off this bus. And what's going to happen if the driver pulls the bus over? What are you guys going to do? Stay put, right? And how might you feel about it? There's nothing new to see. Nothing new. Here I am on this bus, and now we're not going anywhere, right? So throwing them off isn't working. Trying to tell them to shut up or, or reason with them isn't working. What else might we try? Let's sing a song. Yeah, let's distract them. <laughs> maybe if we sing a song or we turn up the radio, maybe they'll quiet down. But what if, what if you guys don't like the music that she turns on or the song she's singing, right? Maybe some people like it, but sadness, she's pretty depressed. <laughs> I don't think she's going to like the music. So distraction, reasoning with, throwing them off, pulling the bus over isn't working. So what are we going to do with these passengers? What can this driver do? Um, tell them to just live with it. It's only going to take a few minutes. Okay, try to tell them live with it. You guys, it's not going to be so bad. It's just going to take a few minutes. But... The passengers are still here, right? Maybe worry, that actually doesn't set well with worry, right? Maybe you're saying, I don't know, have you ever tried to live back here? Well, I just suggest you should give some benzos. Okay, <laughs> maybe try to medicate the passengers, right? <laughs> Pass around some benzos to the passengers. And so on and on, we could go through all kinds of strategies that this bus driver could try. But what we're finding is a strategy that works for one passenger Maybe it doesn't work for another one, right? And it's also consuming a lot of the bus driver's energy and time. She's having to put the bus over, put it, put it in park. Maybe she's missing a route, right? It's slowing you down. So what if this bus driver just drove her bus, just kept it moving, right? These passengers are back here. They're talking, they have complaints, all kinds of different things to say. And yet, is the bus driver able to keep the bus driving even with these passengers here? Yes. Yeah, so the bus can keep moving. So this is meant to be a metaphor. So any thoughts about, well, who do you think the driver represents? Or any, anyone, any idea? 
the self, yeah. It represents a person with pain or just a, a person, right? And what's the bus represent? Yeah, our lives, right? It's our lives. There is actually, <laughs> kind of. And who are the passengers? What do they symbolize? Yes, internal experiences, thoughts, emotions, right? These things that show up on our bus that we don't have control over. So the idea is we don't get to pick our passengers. We don't pick who shows up on our bus that week. Maybe some days it's full. We got a whole load full of pleasant passengers. And other days, maybe it's not so full. But our, the bus driver's attempts at controlling and managing these passengers is actually pulling the bus driver away from staying on track, living her life, right? Keeping the bus moving. So thank you guys for participating. I appreciate your willingness. So let's give them a, a round of applause. Thank you. And so on that note, we will transition. I'll let Dr. Ganson take over. And thank you guys for your participation. And while Jennifer's coming up here, I'd just like to say, uh, Jennifer's been our lead physical therapist. Uh, she came to us already doing mindful movement in Wisconsin, where she typically lives, and uh, has done a great job of training other physical therapists in Atlanta. Yes, thank you for clarifying. When Dr. Sanger said, I beam in, that's not from outer space, that's from Wisconsin. So we'll, we'll just make that clear. <laughs> so if you were participating in an Empower Veterans uh, program right now, and you were coming into Mindful Movement, the third class of the day, we would take a movement break. So as I introduce my objectives and things, I invite you to do a, a mini movement break here, which could be anything you wanted to, but we'll just take a minute or two if you feel like you want to stand, if you feel like you want to move around a bit. Uh, my task is to explain mindful movement, and I, like, like uh, Dr. Hammonds did, we think making that as experiential as possible is a good way to do that. So if you were in a mindful movement class, we would be queuing up a five-minute video. We use Leslie Sansone's walking videos. She's, on, she's got her Amazon DVDs. She's got a nice five-minute warm-up, and uh, she's also on YouTube. There's a similar one on YouTube. So everybody in the classroom, we'd have some synchronized movement going on. Everybody would be walking. Uh, some groups have more rhythm than others. And what I love about Leslie Sansone is she mixes it up. She does some side stepping, and then she goes back to walking, and then she might do some kicks, and uh, some of us will, will add a little bit of arm movements. We, we just really encourage people to make it work for them, and then she might do some knee lifts, and this is just a five-minute routine that, that we all do together. So, uh, wonderful. Well, thank you for doing a movement break with me. I was ready to do one. Feel free to stay standing or whatever position works for you, but uh, I'm going to be describing mindful movement and I wanted to start with this slide uh, the CDC guidelines came out this year and one of their recommendations was less 
uh, pharmacological, especially opioids, more physical therapy. So the American Physical Therapy Association came out and said, oh, we got to do a PR campaign for this. So this is what their PR campaign is. Uh, one of them is, uh, looks like this. And I had some feelings about it when I saw it. But before I share my feelings about it, does anybody in the room, what do you think about this? Has anybody seen this before? Anybody have any thoughts about it that they want to share? Sorry, say it again. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't look like something that's going to be pain relief. Ah, okay. Yeah. It's passive. Oh, my gosh. How about in the back? Thank you. Yes, of all pictures to choose. Um, why did we choose something passive? Same feeling, passive. Any, anybody else have thoughts about this? Judgmental. Judgmental. Yeah. Can you explain what you mean by that? Oh, yeah, overly simplified, and, and um, yeah, it, you can't do, do um, both of those things. A anybody else have thoughts? This is, this is wonderful. I've always wanted to hear what people say about this. How about providers who are thinking of sitting in their office uh, saying, uh, how is this conversation going to go again? You, you want me to talk about, hey, guys, um, I could give you these pills, but um, let's, let's choose the safer way to manage pain, and I'm going to send you to, to physical therapy. Any, any providers have any thoughts about having that conversation in your office with somebody with chronic pain? Yes, yeah, somebody in the back? Not, not something you'd want to do. Yeah. Uh, So you're a physical therapist, and you're saying you're going to start sending all these people to physical therapists, and we haven't really changed the system approach to it. Yeah. Any other thoughts? That's not a starting point in your in your mind there. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the access is an issue. How, how do you have this conversation? Say, well, I'm not going to give you these pills today, but you, maybe you can get into PT in three to four weeks. Yeah, that, that that's a tough conversation. Thank you, everybody. Um, I feel better. That, that just was so helpful for me to, to get to have that conversation. All right, so, so the, one of the questions that I've been asking, uh, especially with conferences like this, is, well, what should a physical therapy intervention for chronic pain look like? And as Dr. Sanger mentioned, we're a quality improvement program, so we are using a lot of the tools from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and one of their tools is a logic model. So here's a basic logic model, and it, it just outlines how uh, it just connects what activities we're doing and what outputs, what patient behaviors we expect to see from those activities, and then what are the outcomes? What, what's the impact 
of our intervention. So let's apply this to a PT intervention for chronic pain. And let's start with the intended results. Let's begin with the end in mind. And typically, these are the intended results that you would uh, typically see for a PT intervention. Decreased pain, which we may or may not see, the, the literature um, doesn't, doesn't really support that. Uh, decreased disability. Uh, and then we talk about self-efficacy to manage pain. And, and then we might even highlight specific physical activity, that, that we want to increase self-efficacy with physical activity, and we want to increase the frequency of physical activity. All right, well, let's fill in our logic model then. Let's, let's think about what activities we might do to achieve these outcomes or have this impact. And uh, I worked six years in an outpatient clinic, so this is similar to the approach that I took, one-on-one, -on -one, evaluate and treat. And we might use modalities and manual therapy if, uh, if we felt like we needed it to get people able to participate in the intervention, although therapeutic exercise is really going to be a, a cornerstone of what we're doing, and self-management education, as, as some of the folks um, pointed out. The patient behaviors or outputs I would expect to see from these activities uh, might expect people to come in two to three times a week to PT. Uh, for me, it was more like one to four times a month. Um, we would expect that while people are in PT that they'll be doing some exercise, probably some strengthening, some flexibility, maybe some aerobic endurance, and then some motor control kind of activities. And then we would expect a, a behavior of people taking that uh, as a home exercise program and continuing that after discharge. Uh, and, and we know that there's, there's good research out there that says, yeah, there's strong evidence for at least a, a, a small effect size. That, that these kinds of, of interventions work. And my personal experience of being in an outpatient clinic is, is this works for a lot of people. And I would call that simple chronic pain. The people who respond to this, I would call simple chronic pain. And uh, though it's the people who this doesn't work that we are really talking about and why we're at this conference. So then what do you do if this model doesn't work? Well the patient goes back to the primary care provider or the specialty referring provider, and maybe they never even showed up for the PT, or maybe they, they did it and said, that didn't work, what else you got? And that's where we hear a lot about, well, maybe integrative health or, or complementary therapy. So uh, we might talk about, well, what about a yoga class or a Tai Chi class? Or, or maybe go to your, your local fitness center and do like an aquatics class. So those are some of the recommendations we might make. Uh, I have a background in Feldenkrais, so you know, we, we might be hearing more and more about Alexander Technique or Feldenkrais. And um, so those might be the activities that are suggested. Uh, the output for that, I'm thinking, is just attendance at a class uh, or for people to go to classes. And we don't know if that's going to affect the outcomes that we're talking about. Um, there, there is some research to suggest that, that some of these things are effective. Um, my, my personal opinion is that the people who are in these trials of the yoga or the tai chi uh, or, or the Alexander technique are the people who uh, would have responded to the, the first model of, of the PT. Uh, but I know there are anecdotes and, and case reports of, of, that, that maybe um, people who didn't respond to the first thing and, and they do respond to this. So, so it's definitely something to think about. But let's take it the next step. Uh, people who maybe do that, that first intervention or, or never showed up for it or tried the next thing and, or, and it didn't work or, or maybe they never showed up for that either. They're back into their primary care provider's office or the, the specialty uh, 
practitioner's office and say, didn't work. Or don't tell me anything else about physical activity. Those are the people that we have to figure out. And that's who, really who um, we had in mind with, with EVP mindful movement. So there are a lot of people like this who really kind of embody the philosophy in this cartoon. Um, and we could put billboards up all over town saying about exercise. And I have stopped going to continuing education that tells me the benefits of exercise. We know exercise is good. We know physical activity is good. How do we get people engaged in physical activity? That's the question. And, and that's really where we're, we're going with EVP mindful movement. All right, so let's start with the first box of our logic model, activities. Here's a general overview of EVP mindful movement. It's a group format. This was new for me, but boy, am I loving this. Uh, we have one-to-one -one available to supplement uh, any barriers to participating in our program. Uh, we, as Dr. Sanger said, have very few exclusion criteria. Uh, if you are appropriate for a group, you can be in our group. And, and, and we've had to design our activities with that in mind. And then the, the third uh, big point is that, as you're hearing at, at these conferences, we can't just think about issues with the tissues. We can't just be a biomedical model. We know how important the nervous system is. We have to factor that into our, our um, uh, design. And, and that's, here's some references that just kind of illustrate how that's changing our, our theoretical models for chronic pain rehab. Okay, well, still in the activities box. Here's a summary of the five key ingredients of, of our EVP mindful movement uh, in terms of content. So understanding pain and the natural tendencies of the nervous system, and, and, and I'll get into this a little bit later. Uh, you've already experienced a movement break, so we do that in EVP, and we encourage people to do that three times a day, just five minutes, three times a day, small changes. Another one is neuromuscular re-education or a movement awareness lesson. And, and again, I'll invite you to experience that with me in a, a little bit later on. Uh, it's about feeling safe in movement, increasing awareness in movement. The, the next one is the same thing. Motion is lotion exercises. Again, about feeling safe in movement, increasing awareness in movement. So this is a, a functional progression of, of movement patterns. And we emphasize mindfulness and, and just ver variety of the context. Finally, neutral spine and the reset button, kind of getting into this self-management piece. Uh, experiential and problem-solving approach emphasizes guidelines applied to daily activities. So we are not prescriptive. We are not telling people what to do. It's much more of a motivational interviewing approach and inviting people to, to share and veterans to share their experience. Here's the piece that gets overlooked. So, so that's our content. Here's also in our activities box is the style, and we do not account for this. I can't tell you how many classes I've been in or providers I've talked to who said, you know, it's the patient-provider relationship that is so important to it. And yet when we read the studies, they don't account for the patient-provider relationship, the therapeutic style. And, and this is huge. So we've identified five key things that, that we think for for, for mindful movement are really important, just basic therapeutic skills, uh, but demonstrating active listening, promoting autonomy, promoting self-efficacy, conveying a genuine respect and positive regard, and cultivating the spirit of discovery and experimenting. Okay, let's move to the outputs box. Be, what kind of patient behaviors do we expect to see based on these activities? And here is a worksheet from EVP ACT. 
uh, where we relate self-care to values and goals. So Dr. Hammonds talked a little bit about clarifying values, and, and that's just what's a meaningful life to me. And then uh, goals in this context might be those mileposts along the way that let us know that we're heading in the right direction. And then we use specific behaviors. You might think of this as SMART goals. These are those really specific goals that help us move in the direction uh, that we value. All right, so here's an example. L let's say this gentleman identifies a value of being a good father. And uh, one of the goals that he identified is, hey, I, I want to do Pokemon Go with my sons. So we might talk about some specific behaviors to do that. Uh, he might say, well, I need to walk downtown for an hour and I need to be able to look at my phone for an hour, which can be a problem. And then I need to be able to sit in a restaurant. Of course, you've got to feed your boys or you know, they get cranky. Uh, so I need to be able to sit in a restaurant for an hour. So this is, is the way we're really trying to think about physical activity. And again, in the outputs box, in mindful movement, I don't need to listen to everybody's specific behaviors for every specific goal. We know that we can we can generalize this into some, some basic categories. So if we can see these outputs, if people can experience small changes in these areas, this is really going to allow people to do a lot of those specific behaviors to allow them to move in the direction of their values. So here's the posture. If people can, can start to just uh, take some action in, in this way, uh, we talked about the, the mindful movement, just, just experiencing more freedom and power with movement. Those motion is lotion exercises. And then those movement breaks, walking five minutes three times a day. So if people can, can do these kind of behaviors, I, I think these really will help with those specific behaviors. All right, so here's another way we represent outputs in, in EVP mindful movement. This is just our activity log that, that uh, some people like to keep track. But it just summarizes. Here's this basic routine that, that we, we do. I included the, the mindfulness and, and breathing that, that's covered more in whole health. And then you can see the motion is lotion things. It takes about 10, 15 minutes to do the, the motion is lotion stuff. And you can see the, the movement breaks there. And then we really talk about, in, in ACT, engagement in in activities that are valued to us. This is where I get stuck in my logic model. Where do I put self-care? And, and if anybody has thoughts, maybe you can catch me afterwards. So to me, self-care is an output. I mean, that's a behavior we're looking to see. And it also seems like an outcome to me as well. That I, I don't know exactly how to measure it. Maybe it's that activity engagement or that, that psychological flexibility. Um, but but self-care is, is an output. If we can see that, or, or self-care is an outcome as well. If we can, can see that, that's really going to impact those other things that we talked about, like pain and, and disability and, and the other measures. So I, I really like this, this statement about the, the paradox of self-care, because it's really hard to, to to um, get people to buy into this. Um, and and I, I, I love this statement. The more energy you give to caring for yourself, the more energy you have to give to and fuel what matters most in your life. And um, I like the research. I've, I've recently been getting into the research of Michelle Seeger. She's a researcher at the University of Michigan. And she gets into a lot of the how we've kind of prescribed exercise and made it into this thing that we should do, which is a is just kind of a big turnoff. And she talks about rebranding exercise. So her, her book is a nice summary of how she, she uh, has kind of summarized her research and, and relates it to meaning. So that, that might be something that you might be interested in. All right. 
would you like to do a little mindful awareness lesson with me? So, so I'll invite you to um, uh, decide if you'd like to do this. This is just something you can do in your, in your seats. Um, you might just imagine this. You might uh, uh, choose to, to, to just do this. But this is what I was talking about with the movement awareness. And this is actually in our, our motion is lotion progression. And, and I thought freeing the eyes and the head would, would be really appropriate for people who've just been at a conference for all this time. Uh, because, you know, we, we, we have this wonderful nervous system that, that does things with, without even thinking about it. So if you think about all these little neck muscles and our eye muscles, and think of how many times a day they are constantly positioning us so that we can do whatever action we intend to do. And we don't even have to think about it. Our nervous system is just really amazing in that way. Well, the downside of this efficiency is that we can get stuck in movement patterns. Uh, how many people wear glasses in here? Bifocals? So when, you know, that's an additional constraint to this, where, where we really get, fo get uh, stuck in these movement patterns of, of how we, we use ourselves. And uh, what, what I, uh, we can do is these simple movement lessons just to kind of uh, hit our reset button and explore other possibilities for movement. So the best way to explain this is to experience it, so let's do it. Uh, so I invite you to just get comfortable in your chairs, whatever that means to you. If you do have glasses on, Consider removing them, putting them in a safe place for the next 10 minutes or so. And uh, if you are seated, um, just find what's a comfortable position for you. We talk about this, this uh, effortless lengthening of the spine, the idea of a strand of pearls suspended from the ceiling as opposed to the pearls being rigid and compressed. What would it be like to just sit with this effortless lengthening of your spine? Uh, so experience that for a moment. Your hands and your feet are just supported in a position that feels comfortable. And I invite you to just check in with yourself, take a moment, observe a breath or two. Notice your breath coming in through your nose or your mouth. Notice your chest and your ribs and your belly, listening for any changes that you might notice. Noticing an inhale, noticing an exhale. And then in the simplest way, I invite you to just turn your head and your eyes, just allow them to move together, and just turn your head and your eyes towards the right in just the simplest way, without straining, without effort. Maybe notice how far you go, you know, kind of maybe find some horizontal uh, thing to, to, to uh, kind of assess and, and see how far you go, and then go back to the midline and just pause for a moment. And then let, let's do that again. So just your head and your eyes moving together towards the right, without straining, without effort, and then just back toward the midline where you pause. And let's do that again. So your head and your eyes, you can imagine this, you can have your eyes open, closed, whatever you'd like to do, towards the right, back to the midline, and just pause for a moment. And let's see what it's like to do that toward the left. So your head and your eyes are moving together without straining, without effort. Just kind of your eyes are just scanning like a, a light beam sweeping towards the left and back toward the midline where you just pause. And we'll do that again, your head and your eyes, uh, without straining, without effort, just simple light beam sweeping or a paintbrush brushing a brush stroke, and back to the midline and pause. And allow that idea to go, if you would. And then let's explore some other possibilities for, for um, freeing the eyes from that. So if your head stays more or less in this midline position, what's it like for just your eyes to scan towards the right 
and then back towards the midline. So in this simple way, without straining, without effort, towards the right. And if you're not sure if you're straining or not, then go ahead and strain. You know, go ahead and look out of the corner of your eye and just see what the difference is. Uh, but the, without straining, without effort, go back to the midline, pause for a moment, eyes scanning towards the right, just like a light beam or a paintbrush brushing a brush stroke, and then back toward the midline. And then let's see what that's like toward the left. So your head stays more or less in the midline. Your eyes are moving towards the left without straining or effort. If you're not sure, go ahead and strain and look out of the corner of your eye. Back to the midline where you pause. Eyes toward the left again, just sweeping towards the left. Of course, if you're, we would have people do this on their back, and I encourage you to try it on your back where you don't have the weight of your head with this. And, and just, then you'd be looking at the ceiling. Um, and then your eyes, one more time, just scanning towards the left in this simple way and then back towards the midline. And then let's, let's free that up in a little bit of a different possibility. So this time your eyes stay more or less in the midline and your head moves toward the right. And just see what that's like. Again, without straining, without effort, your eyes more or less softly focused in the midline. Your head moves toward the right and back to the midline where you pause for a moment. And maybe do that one more time. Your head moves, your eyes stay on the midline, back to the midline where you pause. See what that's like to your left. So your eyes are staying more or less in the midline, your head moves toward the left in this simple way. And again, if you're laying down, uh, this would, would just be like your back of your head just kind of rolling in a simple way and back toward the midline where you pause. And then let's return to that first movement that we did where your head and your eyes are just moving together towards the right. In this simple way, without straining, without effort, and maybe just notice how far you go now. And you come back to the midline where you pause. And we'll do that again. Your head and your eyes moving in this simple way, without straining, without effort, towards the right. Back to the midline. It's like you're, you're light beam sweeping or a paintbrush brushing a brush stroke. And then let's try it to the left here. So what's it like for your head and your eyes? Just checking in, seeing what it's like. Notice how if that's changed from what it was like at the beginning of this. Back towards the midline where you pause. And let's just do it one more time. Towards the left, your head and your eyes moving in this simple way towards the left and back towards the midline where you just pause. And allow that idea to go. And if you were in a, a mindful movement class, I would invite you to stand and walk around the room. So uh, let's just take a moment for anybody who'd like to. If you just stand and, and still keeping your glasses off, you feel safe with that. And, and whatever feels safe for your space, if, if you feel like walking a bit, or maybe you just walk in place or just take a step. But what's it like to just scan the room now? So a, a key part of a movement lesson is we then integrate it into a function. And, and walking is one of the most common functions. So if you're just staying in your senses and just noticing, well, what's it like to, to scan the room? And I don't know, maybe look up and, and see the, around the ceiling, maybe look, look down. And again, just noticing that awareness of your eyes, being aware of what, what's it like to move with a sense of ease and uh, just being a little bit more aware of that. Well, thank you so much for participating in that, and, and thank you for your attention. Uh, I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Sanger, and he's going to talk about whole health. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. So this is, this is fun. Uh, we lead people through things uh, to explore in a safe environment, things that maybe they haven't tried before, uh, which is a lot better than uh, here's a sheet of exercises, 
uh, do them three times a day, and come back and see me in a month, which uh, one of our recent graduates told me was the way that he was referred to the Empower Veteran Program. So he had come into the physical therapy department uh, after waiting three or however many weeks to come in, and he said, you know, I fell off the ladder, and he was given a sheet of exercises and said, do these and come back, and he immediately threw the exercises in the trash and uh, did keep the appointment to come back to share a piece of his mind uh, with the physical therapy department, at which point they said, you need to go to Empower Veteran. So uh, that's how we get some of our referrals. A lot of our referrals come uh, through other social workers who are a great resource uh, to be able to let other people know how to channel into your program. So I'm going to talk now about the whole health portion. And this is from the Office of Patient-Centered Care. This is the Wheel of Health. And uh, I use this in a lot of different ways. Uh, do we have any primary care providers in here? Great. Uh, that discussion about arm wrestling, I need more medicines, and maybe you feel like they're already at an unsafe place, uh, can be sidestepped by going back to what Dr. Hammonds talked about, what's important to you? And let's look at how you're complex. So yes, you came with this diagnosis or multiple diagnoses, but look how complex you are. Uh, here you are as a whole person, hopefully mindfully aware, but often we're mindless and easily distracted with thoughts, feelings, sensations. And there are all these different parts of us, uh, what we eat and drink, uh, recharge and sleep. And I just say, you know, if you're not sleeping well, what does that do to your pain? Oh, it's worse. Uh, if you've got some relational problems with family, friends, coworkers, what did that do to your pain? Oh, it's worse. And they're starting to see a bigger picture of what chronic pain is, and their experience is it's not only what was seen on the MRI. And these are topics that we then explore within the whole health curriculum. So we start out with a mindful practice, and uh, as part of our new EVP four-point series, uh, we're doing two mindfulness practices in each session. Uh, some of them are attentional, like focusing on the breath and learning to uh, just refocus. Some of them are more constructive based on values, like gratitude or self-compassion. And as we are experiencing these together in the class more, even though people often are not initially doing them very much at home, uh, we've had stories come back of saying, hey, you know, I thought this was a load of hooey, and, you know, I've got all these real stressors in my life having to take care of my, my uh, really aging parents. But, you know, I found I was doing the mindfulness practice kind of unconsciously, not intending to, and it was helping. And, and uh, uh, this particular veteran was telling her uh, fellow veterans uh, how good this was and how they, they need to start paying attention and practicing. So we also delve into the eight self-care areas, starting out with things that are a little less threatening, food and drink and, and sleep, and then getting into other really, really important issues. But in this safe place, in a uh, structured way, we talk about 
issues of, of an act of kindness or listening to uh, how, how good of a listener am I? Not to beat ourselves up, but just to consider that if I want to build a relationship, maybe that's something where I could adjust what I'm doing in my listening. Uh, talking about forgiveness and considering whether we want to let ourselves off the hook of unforgiveness. Making meaning and suffering. And so in these areas, we will spend uh, a short period of time but the veterans find this very meaningful, even for 20 minutes, to have this guided discussion about, well, who has tried something like this? Uh, and for uh, food and drink, for instance, we just show them the traditional food pyramid for a Mediterranean diet. We don't say, stop eating processed foods, uh, cut out all that crap. Uh, uh, we save an in an anti-inflammatory diet handout for the end. But just looking at their traditional pyramid, we just say, what do, you, what do you notice on this? So it's not about shoulds, just what do you notice? And then, has anyone tried that? And there's often within a group of eight plus veterans, someone who's a little bit further along in the journey, and they'll share, oh yeah, I tried that, and here's what I'm noticing. And somebody else will say, but, you know, I don't have a place where I can buy that kind of food nearby. And then we'll talk about, well, how might you work around that barrier? And it's a rich discussion each week. And I'm totally surprised that that little bit of interactive discussion is so powerful. For someone, this is part of what is meaningful to them. They're sharing with one another, listening to other veterans who are a lot more credible than the person, the facilitator at the front. And we get feedback at the end at graduation. And at the beginning, I was regularly saying, we've got 30 hours, which seems like a lot, but this isn't a 100-hour program. And maybe we ought to dump the nutrition part, the food and drink part. And they're going, no, no, no. That's so good. And we end that session with the mindful practice of mindfully eating one raisin. Uh, and people say, you know, I started doing this, and I actually can taste the food. You know, in the military, we were just taught to wolf our food down and, and go. But now I'm teaching my family to eat mindfully. So we're doing this now uh, with a motivationally informed style. So this is not didactic. This is not you should. Uh, it's just listening, observing, working around barriers. And there's some handouts up here for you at the end if you'd like to come get them. In weeks one through five, you can see here the whole health, the acceptance and commitment therapy, the mindful movement. Uh, the mindful movement is starting out with the neuromuscular reeducation, gradually building different motion as lotion exercises, talking about very specific things. What about a chair? What might you do with pillows? Uh, ACT is doing all of these great metaphors uh, making it real, practicing some of these things in class. And we're going through different uh, mindfulness practices in whole health, as well as these core self-care areas. So a lot of mindful breathing at the beginning, moving on to a more complex uh, observer self mindfulness practice, adding some constructive mindfulness practices with self-compassion. And this has been 
impressive that, you know, some pretty tough veterans gone through a lot. They've been holding on to a lot for maybe 40 or 50 years from Vietnam, 20 plus years from, from the first Gulf. And uh, uh, they're learning what it can feel like to be there with this self-critical thought and to express to themselves some tenderness and to feel that. They're still there with that thought, but they're also practicing this self-compassion. Uh, we end up on week 10 with uh, a reassessment and then a graduation celebration and some feedback. And what I'd like to do, just to give you a little bit more experience here, is to have a, a, a mindfulness practice. And we'll go through our breath practice. And this is something that if you would like to, you're welcome to join in. You don't have to. But I invite you to sit in a position in, where, in which you're supported and alert. Allow your body to settle into a position. You may choose to rest your gaze downward on a spot in front, or if you prefer, to gently close your eyes. And as you come into this stillness, bring your attention to your breath. There's no need to do anything different with your breath. Just simply observe the breath as it's breathing itself. See if you can rest your attention on the tip of your nose, right where the air first enters your body. Notice that place where air becomes breath. Notice if it has a temperature, maybe a texture. And now follow the breath as it comes in through your nostrils and follow it as far down as you can through your body until you can no longer tell the difference between your breath and the rest of your body. See where that spot is where the breath simply becomes the rest of your body. And then follow the breath back out again. Notice the spot in your nostrils while the breath finally leaves your body and becomes air again. Notice if that spot has any temperature. And continue to follow your breath as if you're riding waves of breathing. Notice the air moving in and out of your nostrils. You may notice that it's slightly cooler as it comes in and warmer as it goes out. Notice the gentle rise and fall of your chest. Notice the rise and fall of your belly. And while you're noticing this, if you find that your mind has wandered off, no problem. Minds do that. Simply be aware that your mind has gotten hooked by thoughts. This allows you to gently bring your attention back to your breath. You might choose to fix your attention on the breath, either moving it in, in and out through your nostrils, or as you notice your chest rising and falling, whichever you prefer.
Just keep your attention on that spot, noticing the in and out of the breath. And whatever feelings, urges, sensations arise, whether pleasant or unpleasant, just simply acknowledge them. As if you were nodding to people passing by on the street, gently acknowledge their presence and let them be there. Allow these feelings, urges, and sensations to come and go while you return your attention to the breath. Whatever thoughts or memories arise, whether they're comfortable or uncomfortable, simply acknowledge them, allow them to be, let them come and go, returning your attention to the breath. There's no need to be impatient or disappointed when you're carried off by your thoughts. It's the same for everyone. Our minds tend to distract us from what we are doing, and each time you realize your attention has wandered, just gently acknowledge it. Notice what distracted you, and then return your attention to the If frustration, boredom, anxiety, or other feelings arise, acknowledge them. Then gently bring your focus back to the breath. No matter how often your attention wanders, simply, gently acknowledge it. Know what distracted you and gently bring your attention back to the breath. Be curious about this sensation of breathing. And now, as we draw near to the end of this exercise together, gently begin to bring your awareness back to the rest of your body. Notice how you're sitting. Notice your feet on the floor. You might picture where you are and what you'll see when you refocus and open your eyes. And when you're ready, gently refocus, open your eyes, and look around. So thank you for joining me in this mindfulness practice. Would anyone like to share, you don't have to, uh, what they noticed? Yes. Mm. Mm. Right. Right. So once we're curious, there's a lot to explore. That's great. Thank you. Anything else? A lot of the veterans will say, well, I feel so relaxed. Uh, and that's a, a, a great side effect of this. Uh, and as people are practicing this, they're noticing 
that they're able to refocus on the things that are really important, as Dr. Hammonds talked about, those things that we value. I'd like to also talk about uh, the social worker role because uh, Ushvani Prasad has been a huge uh, key player for our team. She does a lot of different things, as social workers do. Do we have any social workers in the room? If anyone does not have a social worker as part of your expanded team, I would highly encourage you to find out how to include one uh, because they can do lots of different things. Uh, they're big-hearted people, and they help so much with, with getting over these social factors that we know about. We're in a biopsychosocial spiritual uh, reality, but we're often not social experts. So uh, she does a number of things, including this lower one, intensive case management, to help the folks that are living out of their car to make the appointments, and to get a CPAP machine, to uh, do other things uh, to, uh, to, to come and take advantage of our program. So different stories uh, that Ushvani had shared. One of our lady veterans uh, was homeless, in tears, and she so much wanted to be a part of the program, but she said, I just can't do this. And Ushvani was able to get involved, uh, do some in, uh, initial crisis intervention, and make sure that she was not actively suicidal. Uh, and she was able to complete the Empower Veteran program and enjoy the changes in her life. Mr. C, uh, a veteran with severe PTSD, uh, didn't like to go to sleep because then he would have the nightmares. And, you know, you look through the chart, no show, no show, no show, no show. Uh, with Ushvani's help, he was able to uh, come back. Uh, he was getting some of his social needs met. And so he would come to our classes kind of as a, well, I got to do these if I'm going to have the social worker. And then he got the benefit of, of uh, learning some of these self-care skills. Uh, some other folks early on uh, was, was uh, so withdrawn initially, uh, he would just sit in the back of the class and not even look up. And at graduation, the first time he graduated, he just said, Dr. Sanger, thank you so much. You don't know what this meant to me. Uh, he re-enrolled. And we do allow people to re-enroll, not indefinitely. Uh, but he came back again, and he was so much more interactive in just applying these things and encouraging even some fellow veterans. At the end, he said, you know, I don't need you guys anymore. I really appreciate you helping me, you know, get out of my shell. Uh, but can you help me quit smoking? And this is a guy that had started out saying, every day I'm wondering why do I even want to bother to make it to the end of the day? And now he's saying, help me quit smoking because I want to live. Another earlier veteran, uh, his form of distraction and stress relief was getting on the computer and shooting things up. And this guy scared me. He was, he was part of our pilot uh, initially. He came in off his motorcycle uh, which was one of his values, even though he, he was having a hard time moving. But he was a mountain of a man. And taking off his, his leather breastplate, and it was kind of like, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to piss this guy off. Uh, at the end of the class, he said, I'm not angry anymore. 
I appreciate my wife. You know, every veteran should come to this. He uh, was trying to make it to one class, and uh, he's getting on his motorcycle, but it didn't have enough gas. He goes into the station, turns the key and the gas cap, the key breaks off. Well, he said in the past he would have thrown a fit, but he said, I practiced my breathing. It was okay, and he told us about it next week when he was able to come with gas. On and on, we've got a lot of folks that, that uh, this is impacting them in a lot of ways that our medical anthropologist is going to be able to capture better than our other measures can. So mixed methods is, is a good way to go. One of the veterans was saying that uh, through listening skills, through mindfulness, uh, through this psychological flexibility, he was... Uh, once again in his home where his wife was yelling at their teenage daughter for not doing something or for being whatever his teenage daughters might be. Uh, and he, he just said, you know, why don't we pause? He asked his teenage daughter to, to go to her room for a bit to cool off. And he, he, he looked at his wife and said, you know, that's the way I used to treat you. Uh, so this is something that is impacting pain, but real pain is biopsychosocial, spiritual. It's affecting all of life. And as we're learning self-care skills and putting these things into play, it can have far-ranging impacts to have a fuller life. So after uh, graduation, we have other opportunities for people to continue this journey uh, to work around barriers. I move and EVP Encore are some examples of that. iMove is a weekly drop-in class. Uh, you can have an appointment. You don't have to have an appointment. We do that twice a week. We mix it up with some mindfulness practices, some movement. By the end of the 10 weeks, uh, our physical therapists have people doing what would look like a gentle, brief Tai Chi or yoga class, and then they build on that. Uh, we have a, a model... MOU, Memo of Understanding, with the Metro Atlanta YMCA's. And uh, this has uh, uh, created a relationship where our physical therapist can go and do a warm handoff for veterans who wanted to try the Y, but who thought, oh my goodness, well, I know what to do, to, where to go. Uh, I don't feel comfortable going to the, the locker room. I, I, I hear that the water aerobics might be good, but... You know, I've never done that before. So just to meet them at the Y, uh, to introduce them, to be there with them, uh, has been huge. So this is scalable for access uh, for a fuller life. And this is something that I think we can make a successful argument that this is cheaper than business as usual. So thankfully, our uh, VA Undersecretary of Health, Dr. Shulkin, uh, agrees with all of this, uh, that we're really about whole health, about personalized, proactive, patient-driven care. So uh, we'll be able to answer questions. Uh, for those of you that have access to VA Pulse, uh, we've got uh, links to a one-page summary of EVP, other slide sets to share with medical directors. Uh, I was able to share with all the VA medical directors and all the VISN chief medical officers this idea uh, back in early April. So this shouldn't be new to them. 
And this is something that National VA leadership says is a great idea. And in the National Leadership Conference, they said, uh, our Vision 7 uh, director, Leslie Wiggins, said, we can't wait. Maybe you're not getting money to implement this, but we can't wait to put this into practice. So you had a question, ma'am. Not yet, but we're going to be starting it at a CBOC in Vision 9. And the Vision, the, well, uh, we are ready for business. So uh, earlier today, for those of you that got to hear Dr. Dinoff uh, present about other things that the VA is doing, she mentioned the directive from 2009 that's been waiting to be updated. And thankfully, it's waited long enough to have some other things. So EVP, uh, Matt Gallagher has said, is going to be an attachment to the directive as something that facilities should really consider doing. It's not with money, but I think we can, we can show uh, that this is effective. Uh, it allows veterans to start doing stuff on their own that they enjoy, which means that they're not miserable and doing dangerous things at home, or coming in and using a lot of resources uh, ineffectively in lots of other places in the hospital. And what does that mean? If you don't have somebody that's not getting better coming to 50 appointments every quarter, more access, right? So the VA is talking about access, access, access. This is, this is a way to do things better, smarter, with better outcomes that actually will help us take care of more veterans. So those of you that are doing uh, specialty care and uh, trained to do very specialized testing and procedures, now the clinics, your clinics don't have to be choked full of people that are miserable and, and arm wrestling you with the opioids. Uh, yes, ma'am. This is its own specialized unit, and it could be uh, within mental health. It could be within primary care, PMNR, anesthesia, as we are, uh, or other places. So this is a specialized unit that we've created and said, you know, we need to have this interprofessional team, cuts across lines. I am the first-line supervisor for psychologists, physical therapists, social workers, and, uh, and that's uh, somehow the VA is flexing and, and letting us uh, be creative across lines. So I would actually uh, uh, place it somewhere where the leadership is ready to be supportive and be aware of some other things. Unfortunately, as brilliant as our psychologists are, veterans feel like, oh, if I go to a psychologist, that means that I'm crazy or the pain's not real. So uh, here's a sad factoid. Uh, for veterans who are diagnosed with PTSD, how many of them try an evidence-based therapy for PTSD? What percentage? Yes. So miserably low numbers. So what if we can create this whole life perspective, not symptom-focused, not disease-focused, but this whole life uh, wellness perspective, and say, come on, give it, give it a try. 
Uh, and as veterans are, are hearing about this and spreading it, one of the veterans said, well, I, I heard about it from the bowling alley. So, uh, so they're coming and trying it out, and they don't recognize, oh, uh, Dr. Hammonds is a psychologist? Oh, my God, I wouldn't have come. Uh, but she's so helpful. Yes? That's for the graduates. For those that, that have a wedding to go to or something else, they're, they're having a huge flare and they're just feeling like crap and they, they didn't follow through on their, their intention. Uh, we can have them make that class up with another group because we've got eight concurrent classes and then they can rejoin their group. And veterans over the course of the 10 weeks become little families and uh, they really enjoy the, you know, realizing that they're not the only one and they can hear from other veterans and share stories. And, but it's not a gripe session. It's very structured. It helps them start practicing some life skills and uh, some, some new resilience skills and they've seen a benefit. The meet and greet is a drop-in. So for, for referrals, uh, there are lots of ways to refer. But again, Dr. Dinoff this morning uh, had a great point that uh, there's no wrong way to get in. So this is another benefit of saying we're not about opioids or no opioids. If you want to go to acupuncture, get a whatever, go for it. But if you'd like to explore some self-care skills and see what it's like to, you know, pursue some of your, 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 your goals, uh, come on. Well, thank you all. Uh, I wish you uh, a great afternoon and safe travels.